Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. Caregiving is deeply personal and it's happening all around us whether we see it or not. Millions of Americans require care. Shall I tell you how many millions? This is not a tiny segment of the population. Um, at any given time, it's an estimated 22, 26 million people. But if you ask how many people have been caregivers in the course of a year, it's 40 million. That's an enormous block. That's New York Times columnist Paula Spann. What she's talking about here is America's caregiving crisis, one that we've been letting grow for decades. That 40 million she mentioned nearly triples when you include parents in the conversation. For many people, this crisis is invisible until it isn't, until something shifts in their life and a new baby arrives, a loved one falls ill, or an aging parent needs care. The number of Americans aged 65 and older is projected to nearly double from 52 million in 2018 to 95 million by 2060. As our population grows older, demand for care will continue to increase. And right now, we simply don't have the systems in place to handle the sheer number of people who will need some form of assistance and support as they age or battle illness. As a country, we need to take bold steps to tackle our nation's aging crisis, and we need to do it now. So what does it look like to truly care? Well, for some, it starts with understanding the coming storm and preparing for it. I'm Caroline modaresi Tirani, and this is American Metamorphosis. There really is no uh, greater sense of caring for your fellow human beings than to be able to say, we are there in trying to prepare individuals for disaster, really there with a purpose of care in mind. My name is Sean Potter. I'm a meteorologist, science writer, and weather historian. I've spent the past 20 years doing a variety of jobs related to weather, climate, and communications. Every year, dozens of severe storms hit the United States, leading to tens of billions of dollars in damage. The devastation can be as local as small business repairs and as tragic as lives lost. For 10 years, Sean worked for the National Weather Service, trying to improve our preparedness for storms and reduce their impact. It is a complex problem, and Sean says the first step towards any robust solution is communicating the issue clearly. Unfortunately, change happens sometimes more slowly than we would like, especially with a governmental organization like the National Weather Service. But this all centers around an ongoing program that the Weather Service has called the Hazard Simplification Program, or HAS-SIMP, as they uh, like to refer to it. HAS-SIMP was developed in 2019, and its goal is to reduce the impacts of weather 
by transforming the way that people receive warnings about severe climate events. Plain language is a big component of this. So if you look at the messages that uh, that may have traditionally been put out in terms of some of the the warnings or advisory products and they they might say something like snow expected total accumulation up to 1 inch and that's fine but there's a real push toward having more of an impact based component to the products to the messaging what would that look like so that would look like instead of just saying there's going to be uh there's a forecast for for snow tomorrow afternoon and here's how much it might say something like you know snow expected expect difficult driving conditions if you know that it's going to be for example during the morning rush hour to say conditions on i-95 may be impassable traffic may come to a standstill uh, flights may be delayed so that people can take some real world information and apply it to their real world situations Just earlier this year, we saw Hurricane Ian tearing through Florida with winds of 155 miles per hour. At least 125 people died, more than any hurricane in almost 90 years. And the economic toll of the damage is still being counted. And it's estimated around $200 billion across at least 14 different counties. One of the images that haunts me from the scenes we saw was of a 98-year-old man who was trapped on Pine Island. Waters were up to his waist, and he and his daughter were clinging to a small kayak when rescuers eventually reached them. They thought they were going to die. It struck me that when we're talking about weather, we're not talking about these abstract events, and we have to kind of remember that they have profound impacts on people's lives and not just their livelihoods, not just like, you know, in terms of the the, the financial repercussions of these weather events, but for that 98-year-old, his loss of liberty, his individualism has been um, felled with Hurricane Ian. And all of a sudden now we're introducing a care component for his family who are going to have to take him in and, you know, reorient their lives. I think as a scientist, you, it's easy to, uh, to get focused on, as you put it, maybe the abstract, the phenomena itself. We cannot lose sight of the fact that uh, whether you're a researcher trying to improve uh, the science, whether you're a forecaster trying to uh, provide the forecast, issue the watches or warnings, or a communicator in the sense of um, a broadcast meteorologist who's helping get the message out there that it's really people's lives and livelihoods that we're talking about. You're listening to American Metamorphosis, a podcast partnership between Atlantic Rethink, the branded content studio at The Atlantic, and Boston Consulting Group, a strategic partner to government and business leaders. In our fourth season, we are talking not just about competitiveness, but resilience. This is a time of great uncertainty, untenable geopolitical tensions, shaky economic forces, and the sweeping impacts of climate change are creating a state of heightened stress and constant change. And industries, institutions, and individuals alike are asking how they can prepare for the unknown while staying ahead. In each sector, that will require redefining competitiveness, measuring not just dollars and cents, 
but the holistic impacts of business practices and public policy on society. Because learning to adapt today in the face of adversity means pursuing long-term solutions and more equitable outcomes. It means understanding what resilience means on a granular level in order to make big picture change. And in this case, it means adapting a more flexible, a more enduring and a more human approach towards caregiving. Some hospital is saying to you, okay, your mother's ready to come home. Get ready. Uh, It's Tuesday. You can come get her on Wednesday. And you're thinking, well, what do I do now? And you're just sitting there in the crosshairs thinking, please give me strength. I love my parents. I don't know what to do. I'm Paula Spann. I write the new old age column for the New York Times. I didn't come up with this name. The uh, originator of this column did. It was a recognition that among the many things that were changing with demographics, with better health care, with various kinds of policies, was that aging was different, that people were living longer, uh, but that despite our hopes for this thing called compressed morbidity, which meant that we would be healthy, 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 years and years and years, and then suddenly die, that was not what was happening, that people were living longer, much longer, but with a number of health problems and chronic conditions, that their families were getting smaller, that women were in the workforce, and that there was really nobody on whom we could rely to help care for older people, two-thirds of whom in this country will need some kind of regular daily care with activities of daily living, as we like to say. Activities of daily living are things like dressing, feeding or bathing yourself. And every day, thousands of Americans of all ages lose their capacity to perform those basic functions. And that means that someone, usually a woman, has to step in. I know from experience. So this issue is deeply personal to me. So my dad had a stroke, a brainstem stroke in 2009 when he was 54. Now he lives at a subacute facility out here in California. And I help facilitate and try and find caregivers that will come in addition to the medical staff that keep him alive at the facility, find pastoral caregivers as companionship. Because if you are somebody who is cognitive, and even if you're not somebody who's fully cognitive, it shouldn't mean that you don't have human connection and contact and care. It is so complicated to explain the situation, even to my closest friends, because the trauma and the the day-to-day difficulties are so complicated, everything running the gamut from dealing with Medi-Cal and the insurance companies to trying to make sure that the caregivers feel adequately compensated. And I have a child, you know, I, I, I became a parent during COVID. And so I am, I suppose, one of those examples of the so-called sandwich generation. And I know I'm not alone, but we seem to in the US have a real difficulty, embarrassment or shame talking about this stuff. Why? 
in this country. We all want to be independent and vigorous and in captaining our own ships. So it's difficult to say, I'm having trouble remembering. Uh, I'm having trouble walking. I think my driving's not so good. It's difficult to acknowledge to yourself and to your family and to other people. And so we all just sort of soldier on uh, individually, and it's very difficult. Elder care is very unpredictable. You don't know if you're going to be called to be a caregiver when you're 30, unusual, but it happens, or when you're 50, which is much more common, or maybe your parent is fine until she's 80 and you you do get those you know extra years, and then you don't know what the problem is going to be uh, or how much help you're going to need, and you don't know the duration. So it's it's extremely disrupting to the caregivers' lives. Right now, the care system is onerous to navigate, and there are no government programs to fully cover care that might be needed. We save for our future retirement. We save for our children's education. Um, but we expect Medicare or Medicaid to be there to take care of our parents when they need help. And then we are stunned to learn that that's not true. What's the current safety net for caregivers who are also working in this country? So they have to that dual job, right? They've got their paid labor employment and then they've got this unpaid, usually unpaid labor of caregiving. As with childcare, there is no paid safety net unless your employer happens to be one of those that decides to offer paid leave. There is no mandate that they must for elder care or for child care. Uh, and if they offer leave, it can be unpaid. So there is no safety net in that way. Is there a way that the government could help to do more to remove some of the unpredictability out of that equation when it comes to caregiving for our elders? Well, there is always going to be some degree of unpredictability and a lot of variation because the things that cause older people to need help are various. So if you are getting a hip replacement, let's say, you might need help for a month until you go through your rehab and your PT and you're back on your feet. If you have cancer, it might be a year and then you're in remission and then it's another year. If you have dementia, it gets predictably worse, but we don't know how quickly or for how long. So there's always going to be an element of this, but could there be government or government and employer sponsored programs that would let you know that A, at least you could take time off from work as needed to a reasonable extent and not lose your job or lose your salary or lose your own health care benefits or lose the credits towards your eventual social security uh, benefits. Could we do that? Well, other countries do that. I think we could do that. In fact, President Biden's Build Back Better framework directly addressed several caregiving issues. And one of the things I liked about it was that it didn't differentiate between caregiving for kids or caregiving for elders or caregiving for disabled people in the middle of life. Um, it was just a recognition that family caregivers at all levels needed support. And so there were tax credits for your out-of-pocket expenses. There was guaranteed family leave. Um, there were um, a number of other small scale, but at least good steps in the right direction to saying, in effect, we recognize caregiving as a national priority. And, and then it hit the Senate and it didn't pass. 
Of course, government gridlock goes back further than build back better. In 2010, President Obama had an opportunity through the Affordable Care Act to make caregiving simpler and give more flexibility to workers who might need to take a leave of absence from a job for their own health or a family member to step away from work to provide care to a loved one. But that part of Obamacare also stalled. In the Affordable Care Act that passed in 2010, there actually was a program uh, called the CLASS Act, and it was a a form of long-term care insurance that any worker could use. Um, There was not an employer contribution, but the employers did set it up, and it was modest. But it was seen as a first step of if most of us, the great majority of us, are going to need caregiving for some number of years towards the end of our lives, Let's build in a way to help pay for that through our working life so we're not socked with it when we're 80 and our children are 60. Um, Because private long-term care insurance, it barely exists. Uh, It's not profitable. It's difficult to use. And that's just one side of the issue. Care insurance isn't profitable. But caregivers aren't being paid enough to be able to thrive. When you pay $25 an hour, which is about the average in uh, many states, the caregiver is getting perhaps half of that. It's a low-paying job. It's a stressful, difficult job. Many of the caregivers that you are trying to hire, they are themselves eligible for food stamps and other kinds of government assistance. So there's this enormous turnover, and people can get $15 an hour at fast food. They don't want to necessarily get paid less to do harder work. In short, the system isn't working for anyone, and certainly not for the people who need the care itself. That's where Paula thinks that businesses need to step up. I think employers should contribute because um, I've just written about this. Employers are losing huge amounts of money from absenteeism and distraction of their workers, the ones that do stay on the job, from caregiving for older people. It would be very much in their interests to help keep their skilled, experienced workers working by helping them figure out how to deal with their caregiving jobs. If you are a private company in the US, how should you be thinking about caregiving in a way that is related to your growth as a company and your ability to compete against other companies? Like it feels like there could be a business case for caregiving that perhaps isn't being made as eloquently or urgently at the moment. We had a real wake-up call here during COVID when people left their jobs because they did not have childcare and they don't want to necessarily go back to the office. So some companies are having to contend with, all right, you can stay remote for a while. We see some companies offering childcare. We see some companies offering to pay for the cost of women employees who need abortions and need to travel for it. So. At this particular historic moment, even though the job losses have largely been made up, we have seen employers of many kinds going slightly crazy, trying to get employees and trying to hold on to them, being able to say, we offer various kinds of programs and leave and support for caregivers regardless of the age of the person that you are caring for, if it's your newborn, if it's your parent, if it's your disabled adult child, we offer programs like this, come work for us. I think you could probably come out ahead 
with worker retention and loyalty if you recognize that people are workers and they also have these other parts of their lives that will impact the workforce, whether we like it or not. So just to put in perspective, about 56% of workers have some sort of caregiving responsibility. And if it is harder for them to either stay at your place of employment or stay in the workplace at all, all of a sudden you've lost that competitive advantage. My name is Suchi Shastri. I'm a managing director and partner with the Boston Consulting Group. And I'm a mom of two. At BCG... I, I think that we've, you know, this is something that we've come to realize and care about as as an important issue. And um, we believe it's a, frankly, an economic issue. And we're trying to bring some data and insight to it and join the chorus of voices who are out there um, really trying to help solve it. Care, as Paula pointed out, can remain invisible until it becomes personal. And often it can be an individual burden. But that's where Sushi thinks we need a mindset shift. Caregiving is often referred to in a kind of pastoral sense. You argue that actually we should be thinking about care in a financial and an economic sense in terms of businesses and bottom lines and the ability to be competitive. Why is that? It's a really important question. And maybe I could just take a moment and geek out on you for a second and explain a little bit how we think about the care economy. There's what we call the formal paid care economy. So this is, you know, we, we call the workers in here pay, paid care workers. These are nursing assistants, child care workers. Uh, we estimate this part of the economy to be about two trillion U.S. dollars. Then there's the part that we call the informal or unpaid care economy. And this is really the work that parents put in, grandparents put in, children who are taking care of their parents put in. We call everyone in this group caregivers. And we actually have sized this part of the economy. And it's about three times the size of the formal economy at about four trillion US dollars. So the entire care economy together is about six trillion US dollars. So just that just gives you a sense of the size of it. The core issue really boils down to pure supply and demand. So of that formal sector that I mentioned earlier, we have about 1.8 million vacancies amongst paid care workers. And we're already, and at least up till a month ago, in a very tight job market. These jobs typically tend to be historically underpaid. They have you know, little to no training. Uh, and there's a continued increase in the demand for these jobs, especially on the senior care side. But we just don't have enough people right now to fill them. Give us some of the numbers, Sushi, around caregiving and the cost to industry if we don't actually adequately tackle this enormous problem. Absolutely. So we've estimated this at $290 billion loss to the GDP by 2030. And that's really a function of two things. One is the paid care workers whose jobs are not able to fill, and then the workers who have to leave the workforce because there are no paid care workers upon which they can rely on. So it, as you can see, it's a very integrated system that we need both sides to be able to participate in order to um, actually get the gains 
in our economy. To put that 290 billion number into perspective, that is the size of Alphabet's revenue. That is the size of Connecticut's state GDP. And that is bigger than 23 other state GDP. So we're talking about a lot of money at stake here if you don't get this right. And yet, Sushi, the, the thing that is strikes me when we're having these conversations is that is not how our um, business leaders and also our politicians refer to care. There certainly doesn't seem like there is the level of urgency that the numbers, the figures you just quoted would um, suggest it should have. I couldn't agree more. <laughs> it has an implication on our future pipelines as well. So let me just tell you one other angle from on this, which is knowledge workers of which, you know, a lot of our economy going forward does rely on a big bulk of them come from our college educated and advanced degree holders. The majority of folks sitting in those buckets are now women. So 60% of college graduates are women. 80% of the time women end up taking on additional you know, duties when it comes to childcare. This is where your future pipeline sits. And yet there is a fairly big roadblock in their ability to participate fully. Yeah. And also, I mean, just in terms of reframing this issue, this caregiving issue as a business issue that the corporate world should prioritize, how do you suggest that we go about this because these numbers that you mentioned, it feels like they would make a compelling business case. So how should we reframe caregiving as a business issue that the corporate world really needs to prioritize and prioritize now? Yes, I think there is, you know, there's no one silver bullet in terms of the agenda that the corporate world needs to take on here. So you need options upon options someone who's sick. You know, there needs to be an ability for backup care. There needs to be an ability for the company to put someone in place to do their job for a short period of time. One big area is around reducing the cost of paid care. Um, for a lot of families, this is up to 10% and above of their uh, income, which is a very, very substantial impact. We the, the general estimate for what it should be is closer to 7%. So already, you know, you're above the, the norm. And then in places like California and New York, it goes even higher. Um, and so anything that you can do to help reduce that, you know, e.g. providing preschool or subsidizing preschool, I think the second bucket is around flex work policies, um, really helping to allow people to take the time when they need it. But the public sector here, especially at a federal level, is falling behind the competition. What responsibility does the public sector have when it comes to solving the care crisis? So I mentioned earlier that we have a deficit right now of 1.8 million unfilled paid care jobs. That is an area that if we can move the needle on that, that suddenly makes the infrastructure much more, much more supportable for everybody else. The way to do that is really through two main angles. One is boosting wages. So this is where something like a direct wage subsidy can increase the appeal of these jobs. You know, on the elder care side, increasing Medicaid reimbursements, but also on improving training and recruitment. I think there needs to be um, some help with shifting the narratives. And some states have started doing this already, showcasing these jobs as essential, rewarding, providing training, uh, making these good workplaces to be in, which will help reduce the turnover. All of the data is telling us that this is a ticking time bomb. 
So I really do think shifting the narrative around here from, hey, this is a woman's problem or this is an individual's problem to this is a public good. Because if we, if you have the support and we have the infrastructure, we can create a nation where we are unleashing the potential of our best people. That is an amazing story to be able to tell. We can talk about caregiving like the weather. We can think of the crisis we face as a silver tsunami or bolts of care crises lightning that shock us from our day-to-day and roil our equilibriums. Or we can think of it less as a singular event and more as a season of life that we're all going to go through, whether we have kids to care for, parents to tend to, or a loved one who needs our support. The care economy affects us all. Here's Paula Spann again. I took over this column, The New Old Age, at the New York Times from the reporter Jane Gross, who had started it, and thought, well, this will be really good to do. I'll do this for three years or four years, and then I'll run out of material. And so now it's, I think, 13 years, and we're not running out of material. We're learning a lot more about it, um, about what what happens to older people as they age, what helps, what hurts, what supports caregiving, discrimination of various kinds. It's just, it's endless and fascinating. So, uh, and, and in the interim, of course, I have become an old person. So initially I was writing about them, our parents, our, you know, our, our older citizens. Now I'm writing about us. I'm 73 um, and I can see, I can't see the future, but I have some ideas about the future. So um, it, if anything, it's probably become more important to me as I become one of the people who is going to be impacted by these policies and procedures and practices that I write about. Sushi feels that we got a window into the future of care throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, a scary vision that should have served as a wake-up call. During the pandemic, I lived in New York City, I was pregnant, and, um, you know, every night we would come out and we would bang pans and we would whoop and holler for essential workers. And these people were the people that were literally keeping our society running at a time of just unimaginable stress. The city was quiet. You couldn't hear a single sound. There was no traffic, no hum. All you would hear, the things that would punctuate the air, were sirens and helicopters. And you knew what that meant. You knew that that meant that somebody was desperately ill and was going to be going to hospital. And you knew that the people that were out there and the people we were banging the pans for were absolutely essential. Essential to keeping our economy going and essential to sustaining the life, literal lives of the city. And how swiftly we seem to forget that and how um, two years on that seems to have dissipated from the public consciousness. How do we retain a sense of urgency around this issue and not allow people to revert back to a time where we didn't celebrate and treat people who are providing care as not only essential but as important. I think that through the pandemic, one thing we realized was just how connected we are as a world, how reliant 
we are on each other. Um, you know, America really came together in a cohesive unit in some ways, you know, really supporting each other. And I think that's really ultimately, I think it's what makes us great. to American Metamorphosis. Join us next week as we navigate through political gridlock. And if you've enjoyed American Metamorphosis, please rate and review us wherever you listen to your podcasts.